You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On Thursday, February 22nd, the Washington Post hosted another installment of its ongoing Addiction in America live news series, where policymakers, researchers, and healthcare experts examine the country's opioid crisis. In this segment, leading medical experts discuss how doctors and healthcare providers are working to curb the overprescription of drugs. They also address new therapies and substance abuse treatment models. Let's listen. Hello again, folks. Uh, our next panel is uh, going to explore the issues of treatment and uh, how uh, healthcare professionals uh, are working to combat opioid addiction. Um, with me, uh, next to me is uh, Bertha Madras, psychobiologist at McLean Hospital, uh, professor of psychobiology at Harvard Medical School, and a member of the President's Commission to Combat the Opioid Crisis. Michael Botticelli is the executive director at the Graken Center for Addiction at Boston Medical Center. Uh, Mr. Botticelli served as the director of the White House Office of National Drug uh, Control Policy under President Obama. And Dr. Chinazo Cunningham is a professor of medicine at the Albert Einstein School of Medicine and Montefiore Medical Center. Um, I wanted to start by asking all three of you, if I couldn't get insulin or I couldn't get high blood medication for my high blood pressure, and this was rampant across the United States, nobody would accept it. Nobody would put up with it. And yet, today, in 2018, a tiny fraction of the people who need treatment for what we completely recognize as a disease can't get it, don't get it. Could you just try to demystify for us why that is? So, you know, to your point, only about 10 to 14% of people in the United States who need treatment get it. And if you look at why people don't get it, you know, one of, one of the reasons is certainly capacity, that we just don't have enough treatment capacity. The second is, as much as we talk about this as a disease, we still haven't firmly um, embedded this as part of mainstream medical care, and you heard the governor talking about this. So we know that people with untreated addiction are high utilizers of our emergency departments, or in our hospital beds, or in our child welfare systems. And, and we don't do a good job at identifying people and referring or even starting people on treatment. And so, you know, part of what I think is um, important for us at Boston Medical Center, and I want to acknowledge the fact that the Graykins are in the audience who gave this magnificent gift for us to continue to do this work, is how do we think about intervening with patients who come into our emergency departments, who are in our hospital beds, pregnant women, and how do we give them good care? You know, the other piece, and I have to say this if you look at data, not having insurance coverage, um, and we've seen in particularly parts of the state that have expanded Medicaid, we have the lowest insurance rates here in Massachusetts, um, that giving people good insurance because they not only have addiction uh, is issues with addiction, but have co-occurring mental health issues and chronic disease conditions. So, so I think, um, and the third piece is stigma. So when you ask people who even know they need help why they don't seek care, they are afraid that friends and family are going to find out. They're afraid that employers are going to find out. So we can have the most robust treatment system uh, 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 you know, imaginable. 
but unless we really destigmatize addiction and, and diminish some of the shame and that prevents people from seeking care or delays people from seeking care, we're not going to make a major dent in that 10 to 14 percent number. Dr. Madras? Well, there are number, I'd like to add number four to that in terms of the NISDA data that you're quoting, and that is a number of people with substance use disorders in the country don't feel they have a problem and don't seek treatment. That is a, small, a smaller proportion is involved with opioids, but that's certainly true. And part of the reason is that when they attend to a, a, a physician, the physician is not asking the appropriate questions. And if we go back, we found out that 10 years ago, less than 30% of medical schools even educated physicians on addiction. That's a major gap in medical education. Years ago, I organized three medical education conferences in Washington, and I invited every dean of every medical school to show up. And out of the 130 or so medical schools, not one dean came to listen to our message that we have to educate physicians on addiction, we have to educate them on opioid prescribing, and we have to educate them on pain management. Yep. You know, one of the things I want to kind of chime in here, if you look at of those who are getting treatment, the biggest referral source to treatment is our criminal justice system. 36% and only 8% of referrals are coming from our healthcare delivery yeah. system. So, so we really haven't seen this as a disease. And you know, the other thing, I, I, I'm a person in re recovery and one of the things that, like one of the phrases that I wanna do away with is the fact that people have to hit bottom before we can motivate them to seek care. Like we, we don't wait, we don't say to people with hypertension, <laughs> we're gonna wait till you have a heart attack before we have a structured intervention. Right. We're, we're doing screening and prevention. We're doing early intervention to monitor symptoms along the way. We are motivating people through structured interventions to seek care, right? So, so we really have to do a better job of, if we, if we really believe that this is a disease, thinking about various you know, evidence-based structured intervention programs and, and identifying and motivating people to seek care at various intervention points. Mm -hmm. Dr. Cunningham, you, you have a, a perspective on access. Absolutely. Right, so, you know, the, the thing about um, substance abuse treatment or addiction treatment is that we have completely fractionated systems, right? So could you imagine if you asked somebody to go for their diabetes in one place to a different provider and then everything else separately? And that, you know, and so that system that we have created really causes tremendous problems and really the whole person is not cared for. So I think one of the you know, big issues here is we need to integrate addiction treatment into all of the rest of the medical treatment that we provide, so into primary care, and then think about specialty treatment for people who are complicated or who need that additional expert opinion. But for a lot of people, that may not be the case. And so for hypertension and for diabetes, that's what we do. It's managed for the most part by primary care providers, and then when people have complicated issues, then the experts get involved. But really, it's you know taking care of one person, um, you know, by one provider, really with comprehensive care, and we don't do that with addiction treatment. But excuse me, one second. Why would a primary care doc want to take that on, even if it were just you know a couple dozen, two dozen, three dozen people? Why would, in an already over, overburdened practice? Right. So what you're asking is really has to go with stigma. 
Absolutely. So why would a doctor want to take on somebody with diabetes or somebody with hypertension? Well, that's our job. I mean, we're physicians. This is what we <laughs> signed up for. So, well, I, I mean, I would argue that that has to be incorporated into education, right? We get trained on diabetes and hypertension, not on addiction. And that has to be, come through, through all the way through. So I also would say is, why would you want to take care of addiction? Well, people with addiction do touch our healthcare system. They are there. Mm -hmm. We're just not having the conversations, we're not doing the screening, and we're not doing the treatment. So we sort of close our eyes, to, you know, a blind eye. So, you know, addiction doesn't discriminate. People with hypertension and diabetes have addiction. And we really just need to be screening and to be treating those patients. So they do touch our system. You were going to say? I was going to say that what we had about a century ago is a giant disconnect between conventional treatment and the healthcare system. And what we have to do now is essentially create a Manhattan project on reforming medical care and treatment and bringing those two solitudes together and implementing evidence-based treatment that is in fact uh, the, the carrot and the stick would be reimbursement to impose the highest possible standards on both the conventional treatment centers as well as on compelling the medical community to address this issue. So reimbursement is too low. Um, there's no incentive for folks to get into the treatment. Um, and volume. for an average GP or internist who is not a specialist in addiction, they need supplementary support. They need behaviorists that are trained. And I think medical schools have to step up and revolutionize the type of training they're giving, not only to physicians, but to a cadre of people who are behaviorists. Because so many of our current problems, which include obesity, as well as, <laughs> as, well as, as, as addiction, as well as many other behavioral health problems, cardiovascular disease, and so on, there isn't a cohort of people that can facilitate a physician's practice and help them do the, do the behavioral interventions while the physician administers prescriptions for medications assisted. Michael? But, but this is where, you know, I, I, I often think, and I, I will channel Dr. Nara Volkov, who's the director of the National Institute of Drug Abuse, the world's foremost research, and she has said many times, yes, we need to continue to innovate, but we know what to do here. Like, we know what works. And part of this is, how do we go from some of these innovative models that we know to be effective and make sure that they are the standard of care and replicated, right? So we have highly effective models, one that was started at Boston Medical Center that looks at integrating primary care um, and addiction treatment. So we have over 700 people who walk into our primary care clinic every day, indistinguishable from any other patient, so they don't look stigmatized, and they're getting comprehensive, judgment-free, and highly respective care. And not only are we giving them addiction treatment, but we're looking and making sure that they're stably housed, that they have employment opportunities. So we see, at 12 months, 70% of those patients still retained and engaged in care, <laughs> right? So we have these models that are effective. Um, and part of our goal, not only at Graken, but also nationally, we've got, to, we've got to replicate these models. And you know, to Dr. Madras's point, we have to make sure that the reimbursement structure is there to be able to, to support that kind of work. Folks, the, uh, the hashtag for your Twitter questions is uh, post live. And uh, here's one uh, that comes in. Um, can someone discuss, um, is opioid treatment um, 
is it uh, segregated by race and income? Do minorities and the poor have more trouble getting um, treatment and care than other folks? You're, you're nodding, Dr. Cunningham. Right, so, so I work in the South Bronx, and my patient population is 99% people of color. I've been doing this for 20 years. This is not new there. This is new, I think, in really in suburbs and rural America and in white populations. And, and really, our, our response has been different. I mean, I think it's great that we're up here talking about this and really what we need, but, but this is not new. Um, what I would say is a couple of things. A lot of the traditional treatment centers are in communities of color. So those are the methadone clinics, right? And they are effective, but they are in the communities of color for the most part. I think when buprenorphine came out, this provided a lot more opportunity to provide treatment in a, in a you know, widespread communities. So, so now we can really provide it in any setting because it can be, um, because, of, because of the limited regulations around it. But a lot of the problems that we've seen have to do with prescription opioids. And um, what we do know from data is that communities of color have actually not, have had disparities in care and were less likely to be prescribed opioids. So if you take that and you look at what the data show now, which is that deaths that are opioid related are much higher in whites than in people of color, a lot of that is because of the prescription opioid issue. And in fact, the disparities in people of color have actually been protective. In addition, because the methadone clinics have been in communities of color, there has been access to treatment more in communities of color. So this, this is an interesting phenomenon where the disparities in care have actually been protective for people of color and the sort of, you know, more widespread prescription opioids have actually hurt the white population. You know, I, I do think that we have to acknowledge that for particularly communities of color, our response historically has been an overwhelming criminal justice response. That, you know, people in our jails and prisons, largely people of color, are, are there because of... Uh, so, so part of our reform is not just healthcare system reform, but criminal justice reform. So, so we've got to think about how do we divert people away from our jails and prisons in the first place? How do we make sure that people in jails and prisons are getting good evidence-based treatment and that we're getting them good uh, re-entry services on the way out? Data that, you know, that uh, Massachusetts has put together shows that those that are com coming out of our correctional facilities are at 120 times the risk of an overdose. Um, but we've seen good models. So Rhode Island actually just this, did this very interesting study where they looked at getting people in our jails and prisons on a medication-assisted treatment. Can you explain for folks why that is the 120 times? Sure. So, so one of the things that we know is, one, people who are in our jails and prisons don't often have access to any treatment at all, but particularly medication-assisted treatment. And we know that you're at heightened risk for an overdose when you go through a period of not using. And then you start using again at the same level. So your tolerance is way down and that's where your risk goes, goes way up. And that clearly is borne out in the Chapter 55 data that we have here in Massachusetts. Yeah. So part of this is how do we start and, uh, and get people on good medication-assisted treatment and then transition them to the community so that there's no interruption in Keep care. Keep them on it. Keep them on. And, and the good news is that in the commission report, we recommended that drug courts be implemented in all 96 federal courts so that we can expand it 
when I served as deputy drug czar in the country, what I found is that drug courts serve less than 10% of the people who would be eligible for it. And a drug court essentially gives you a choice of treatment or prison. And I think this is a much more humane way of dealing with people who have felony convictions and also have an addiction. We also recommended in the commission report that there be treatment in, in our prison system so that people do not come out tolerant, uh, a, a loss, with loss of tolerance to opioids and then die within weeks or a few months of, of release from prison. We also recommended a number of, um, of steps to take on release of prison to help individuals gain uh, a restoration of their hope, their employment, their communities, and recovery housing for them. So the commission did deal quite extensively with the prison population or, or the population that's involved with the criminal justice system. We know, <clears throat> pardon me, we know sitting here today based on research that 40 to 60% of the people who uh, become addicted to opioids and other drugs are going to relapse at least one time mm -hmm. before they, they get better or whatever happens, but at least once they're going to relapse. And many people I've spoken to have relapsed six, seven, eight, ten times. Can we bend that curve in any way? Is there work going on to bend that? So, you know, I think that the patterns that we see with that are similar to other chronic illnesses. Um, I don't think it's really that different. So if you take somebody, for example, with diabetes who's trying to lose weight, how many relapses do they have in terms of getting off of their diet, right? Same thing with smoking. So I think that this is really a common phenomenon with, um, with chronic diseases that require major behavioral changes. And we all know behavioral changes are very difficult. I mean, how many of us have you know, said we're gonna exercise every day or we're gonna try and lose weight or whatever? And it, it's hard to do that. And we have periods of time when we don't sort of follow the path that we know we should be following. So I don't think addiction is actually any different than a lot of other chronic illnesses. Except that a relapse can be fatal. Yes. So, 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 so it's, much more, it's much more important that we, yeah. we do something. I think research is trying to understand why people relapse. And it's very clear that some of the reasons are stress, cues. You, you, know, you go into a community where you've used, you see paraphernalia, or you see cues of other people using, and you relapse. And trying to understand the wide array of what is going to trigger a relapse and to train people how to avoid those triggers is what the current state of the research is. Because I think the kind of relapse that we see with some other diseases, non-compliance with medications, for example, in diabetes, are somewhat different than the relapses that we see with addiction. And these differences have to be reamed out with very exquisite research that targets wide swaths of the population. So if I were theoretically able not to go back to my previous environment, you think there would be fewer relapses? Not going back to your previous environment. If there's a stress, for example, your spouse has decided to leave you and take your children because they don't want to live with a person who's had this history of, of of opioid use disorder, all these stressors can trigger relapse. How does one deal as a, at an individual level with those kind of stressors? And how to train people to try to recognize that this stressor is likely to 
get them into a position of wanting to use again. Going back to the friends who trained you. May I just give a quick anecdote? One father quit his job to rescue his son from an opioid addiction, and he drove in separate cars with his son to a new place in Oklahoma from Texas to try to rescue his son, take him away from his friends. And his friends held a little farewell gathering and gave him a prescription opioid. And the father showed up at the meeting point, and the son didn't because he died of an overdose, because his friends just triggered that craving. He had been drug-free for months, and the father knew that rescuing his child would mean removing the environment. I feel like, you know, here again, yes, we need more research, but here again, the evidence is pretty clear about what we need to do. If we want to reduce relapse rates for people with opioid use disorder and reduce mortality from fatal overdoses, getting people on one of the three FDA-approved medications is one of the simplest things that we can do, right? So I will tell you, but you know, part of it is, and again, we have this great data set to be able to look at that, that only 5% of people who are experiencing a fatal overdose are getting on a medication and, but if they get on a medication, we can reduce mortality of a fatal overdose by 50%. 5 so 5% get medically treatment? 5%. Of those people who are even getting treatment, this is nationally better here, much better here in Massachusetts. Only 20% of people who are getting treatment are getting on a medication. And we need, like, and part of this is, yes, we need to expand treatment capacity, but, you know, we've really got to understand and be crystal clear that preventing relapse and preventing overdose deaths, and, and, and again, this is not saying that people don't need all the other behavioral supports and recovery supports, because we clearly know housing and employment can be really destabilizing to someone's recovery. Sure. But it's crystal clear um, that getting people on a medication reduces relapse rates and reduces overdose death. Um, and just as a nation, we are not doing a good enough job of getting people on a medication when they need it in our treatment programs and in our emergency departments and in our hospital beds and in our primary care clinics. And I would also argue, too, that I'm, I completely 100% agree with what you're saying, but the, I think a big problem is, is we continue to fund programs that don't provide evidence-based treatment. We are doing what we've been doing for decades, and it doesn't work, and look where we are. And so I think we really need to change the way that we fund treatment in this country, because funding programs that don't provide medication-assisted treatment is not evidence-based treatment. So you know, I think that, that the money has to follow the data at, in, in terms of what works. We have about three minutes left. I'm gonna, I, there's something you all have mentioned that I want to bring up. Uh, but I'm going to give you each about a minute to talk about it. Sorry about that. Um, you all mentioned stigma. I went and looked up some polling on stigma. Um, and as of middle of last year, 36% um, of those polled still believe that um, addiction is a personal weakness. Um, seems to me that lies under everything. You all, you all have mentioned it as underlying a lot of what goes on. How do we attack that? Dr. Madras. Well, one of the most, what I would call despairing pieces of data that came out very recently is that when a, a Dr. Alan Leshner and Nora Volka both uh, promoted the concept of addiction as a brain disease, they felt that that concept would 
relieve the stigma and also help engage the medical community. What, it, what a recent research paper has shown is that the designation of addiction as a brain disease does not destigmatize it. And that's really a massive problem because the stigma not only lies within families, within the healthcare community, people are afraid they're going to be dismissed or, uh, by their physician, but it lies even amongst people with opioid use disorder because some of them say, well, I'm not a heroin addict, I, I'm, you know, I, I got here through iatrogenic uh, addiction through my prescription opioids. I'm different from those folks. There is stigma in every sector of society that has to be addressed in different ways. Michael? So we've other, you know, we, we've seen over time, not just with addiction, but with issues of HIV and others that, you know, often we see these diseases of diseases of other, right? So I think that there are some things that we can do to, to kind of diminish that stigma. One is be more open. For those of us in recovery, those of us who've been affected by this disease need to be much more open about who we are. We, we change people's minds by personal stories. And, and I think we have to create that this is not something of other. I, I actually think our employers have a huge role in diminishing stigma by how they think about this. You know, we're a very large institution. We have 7,000 employees who've been personally touched by this. And what Kate Walsh as a CEO does in signaling to our employees that it's okay to ask for help, that we really care about you, I think becomes really important. And then the third is kind of fairly simple yet hard, is change our language. So there's lots of evidence to show that the language that we use is highly judgmental and highly stigmatizing. And so we really, actually the AP style guide, Lenny, um, put out guidance to all journalists in stopping using words like addict and junkie and substance abuser. Right. We have seen that those has a direct, um, there are some people who haven't gotten that memo yet um, and will work on that. Um, but, but we need to change our language because that has a direct impact. And you know, and I gotta tell you, I, you know, I remember in a very personal way knowing that I needed help. Mm -hmm. And I was too afraid to ask for it because I was afraid people would think I was stupid, that I was weak-willed, that I didn't have the character that I needed. And, and, and we, like, we really need to do a better job of, of, of really understanding that this issue affects all of us. And, that, and, and again, I think that there are lots of opportunities for us to create uh, and to really destigmatize. De and I, I, and I, um, one final thing, and I have to give a shout out to Secretary Sutters. If you haven't seen a State Without Stigma campaign, um, it is beautiful in terms of the narrative that it, it, it tries to tell those exact stories. Um, and, you know, I think every state and every community um, should uh, replicate that kind of anti-stigma campaign. I have to cut us off here. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> unless you have a very brief final word. My final word is, uh, in addition to all these other things, I think we have to bring it into mainstream, and, and, and particularly in healthcare. The more it's sort of mainstream treated like other chronic illnesses, I think the more that also will reduce stigma. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.